Well, this is great. Why don't we uh, return to Esther 1, and uh, someone will tell me the page number in a second, I'm sure. 410. 410 in these church Bibles, Esther. And uh, a little bit of backstory. I thought when we were do, doing sermon planning for the year, I, uh, Colin and I met and said, okay, what are we going to do? I said, well, I'll do a very short sermon series on Esther to just fill up after Colossians before Christmas. You know, there'll be two or three Sundays, two or three Sundays, a great story. We'll tell the story in two or three Sundays. This is going to be quick and easy. Well, famous last words. I started reading Esther. I got to verse 8. I realized, okay, there's a sermon in verse 1 to 8. So we're going to go that pace, and we're going to go into the new year, going slowly through the book of Esther. Uh, and so we're going to spend some time in Esther. Um, this first chapter, we're not reading the whole chapter. The first chapter is going to bristle a little bit. It asks some questions. If you went ahead and you read the whole chapter one, just, just for the record, that is not where Christians go to figure out how men and women are to relate to one another. You can go read the passage, but that is not where we go. We go to Ephesians 5. That tells us about how men and women are to relate to each other. Uh, that is uh, uh, really just a sign of an indulgent king. But we'll get to that next Sunday. This Sunday is Esther 1, verses 1 to 8, and we've got to just give a little bit of context. This is actually a historical book. In fact, if you went and visited the British Museum, you can go and see Cyrus's cylinder, uh, and there in... Uh, what is, the, what is the language they write in? in come on. No, no, it's not that. No, it's a start with a C. Yeah, cuneiform. That's it. In cuneiform, you can read the cylinder, and you can read about King Cyrus and, and how he defeated the Babylonian Empire. And one of the first things he did, we read, we read about that in Ezra, not Esther, in Ezra and Nehemiah, how he frees the Jews. He sends the Jews and other people groups back to where they came from, it's a clever plan, by the way. This is a massive kingdom. The Babylonian Empire was a massive empire. And so Cyrus gets in charge because he's defeated the Babylonians. And he figures out, how am I going to keep track of this massive empire? So he essentially buys his way in. He sends the Jews back. He gives them money to go build their temple. There's two or three other groups that's mentioned in the commentary that he sent back for, so that they can go and build their temples to the people groups that they belong to. And this is backed up by uh, a book that you can still read. Is it Herodotus that wrote uh, uh, an account, Her Herodotus, The History of the Persian War? That was written 25 years after. Is that true? Herodotus. Herodotus, that's far better, yeah. That just sounds right. Herodotus wrote this, and the, um, 25 years after all of these events took place, we've got a historical account of the things we read about in Esther. Now, just to place you a little bit, during the time of Esther... Who's ever had to memorize the, the, the mathematical uh, theory of Pythagoras? Huh? Pythagoras, anyone? Yeah, there we go. The maths teacher has done it. Oh, there we go. The maths specialist has done it. Yeah, so this is in Greece uh, at this time. There is this incredible up, uh, upswell, groundswell of intellectual pursuit. Uh, it's the period of Socrates. Socrates. Socrates, I know someone has a cat named Socrates, I shall meet this cat at some point, but, but there is a very, uh, there is just this intellectual period in Greece. Now, Greece is the empire that is the great nemesis to the new Persian empire. So Cyrus has taken, uh, taken over from the Babylonians, he's ruling over an uh, area that's all the way in the east from Pakistan, 
uh, to the west to Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and some Greek islands, and to the south to the north of Sudan. This is a massive kingdom, the Babylonian Empire. Oh, but Alexander the Great is just getting ready. And so the real fight for the Persian Empire is going to be to their neighbors to the, to the west against the Greeks. And when we read, and what we read now is all about King, some translations call him King Xerxes, but the NIV went with, the, with the ESV went with his Hebrew name, uh, Ayashiris. Uh, the Greek name is Xerxes, uh, and, and tells us how Ayashiris plans to unite his disparate and diverse kingdom. And it's through a feast, through a banquet. Let's listen to this feast. Let's hear what happens at this feast. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days to be precise. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the courts of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was, according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. What a party. What a party. We were, um, we were at Andrew and Rachel's wedding yesterday. It's a beautiful wedding. It's Canterbury. Wonderful day. Wonderful evening. Incredible. And it's the first time I've seen this. This is a very wise strategy, I suppose. But, but at our tables, we, had our, uh, we were wonderfully hosted at the table with rich food and beautiful desserts and everything. And at the beginning, I found a little blue token on my table. I no, don't see if you've ever seen, a, uh, seen this at a wedding. Just a little blue token. And you could go and hand this token in at the bar for a free drink. How great is that? That's a great way to sort of limit your expense because an open bar can be expensive, I'm sure. Limit your expense. Now, at King Ahasuerus' party, that didn't only last from, what was it, 12 o'clock yesterday is when we started. I think it finished at 11 o'clock last night. His party lasted for 180 days. How long is 180 days? It's six months. That's half a year of feasting it's incredible and at the end of this feasting sort of a last hurrah he opens the doors up for everyone to come to his party everyone great and big and small and old and rich and poor and everyone comes in and they eat and drink whatever they want for as much as they want without blue tokens they just kept going they just kept going what an incredible picture now what was the king doing at this festival this king knew he knew that there's power in eating and drinking together now i'm sure you've heard this phrase before perhaps you haven't but uh, apparently 
It was said by President Kennedy uh, at the, the uh, giving an honorary citizenship to Winston Churchill at the event where this took place. Uh, Kennedy had this famous line about Churchill. He said, Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. What a great phrase. Mobilized the English, English language. He sent it into battle. Now, what King Aishira is doing is he's mobilizing eating together and he's sending it into battle. Let me explain why I say that. What he did for 180 days, he brought all the generals from all over his new empire into the palace. And he showed off his power. He showed off his strength, his, 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 his money, his treasures. He showed off. More than that, as we'll discover as we read further in Esther 1, he didn't just show off his power and his opulence, but he also showed off his desire for pleasure and his ability to give pleasure. This was a king that mobilized eating and drinking together to get all of these generals from all over his disparate kingdom, all the way from Pakistan to Turkey to South Sudan, to get them united. Why? Because he needed their allegiance so that they will go to their lieutenants and they will mobilize them in order to make war on Greece. It's Alexander the Great in 330 before Christ that finally triumphed over Ayashiris. So these plans uh, did not succeed. This idea of binding the Persian Empire together so they can defeat uh, the Greeks, it didn't work because Alexander the Great deposed them. But nonetheless, we see that this king is using this meal, this party, uh, as a way to win people over. I guess he's learned from the best. We'll get to that in a little bit later. But just think about it for a moment. What is it that is motivating you to go into battle for your superiors? It might be that your superiors are bosses or line managers or head teachers or, uh, or employers or customers if you're running your own business or school authorities, Ofsted, whoever else. There's, there's all kinds of authorities that's placed over all of us as we sit here, whether we're working or not. Uh, and, and what strategy do they rely on to motivate you, to mobilize you to go into battle on their behalf? They rely on something. Now, I don't have the answers to that. I can make up answers. I can say, well, I've, I've heard of people receiving uh, a promise of promotion, and so that's one way the boss motivates his lieutenants and generals. He promises career progression, and so that motivates you. Uh, I've, I've heard of people uh, incentivizing through bonuses to say, well, if we reach these targets, then we'll get these bonuses. Uh, they're mobilizing people, and they're relying on the power of money to do that. For others, they are mobilizing people to go into battle for them with a vision, an enticing vision. Uh, a vision of, of world change, perhaps global change in one particular industry or aspect of human society. Uh, often organizations that doesn't have a lot of money has to rely a lot on giving this great vision of what you'll accomplish. And so this is what they rely on to mobilize you in order to do what? To sacrifice. In order for you to go and, and lay yourself down for this higher purpose. Take a moment and just think, who is... Who is above me? What are they doing? What are they relying on to mobilize me to fight on their behalf, to lay myself down on their behalf? We're going to contrast this now with what God's doing. So you want to think that through for a moment. Uh, 
whilst, I do, whilst you think about that in the back of your mind, let me just quickly say something else about the book of Esther. The book of Esther, we need to see the big picture of the book of Esther. Uh, I, on one hand, I want to tell the whole story, but then I'll spoil it for you. But you're going to read the whole story. It's only 10 or 12 chapters. You can read it. You can look at the Bible Projects video. It's great. You can see that as well. That gives you an overview as well. There's plenty of ways that you can get the story. But I'll let the cat out of the bag in one of these cases. The main guy of this story, the main antagonist, is a man called Haman. And Haman wants, with everything in him, to destroy the Jewish people. And his, his, his anger is is devoted to one person who is a Jew called Mordecai, and he's angry at Mordecai. And Mordecai happens to be the uncle of Esther, who is the hero, heroine of the story. But at the end of the, of the book, Haman dies on the very gallows that he's built for Mordecai. This is a brilliant story of reversal of fortunes. It, it, it turns things around like that. It happens constantly, and I, I would hope to show you this as we go through this book. There's probably about 20 reversals of fortune in the book where you expect this to happen to this person, and then the very thing this person wanted to do against his enemy happened to him, and his enemy goes free. It, it just, it's constantly this surprising reversal. And, and the biggest picture of the whole thing is, is that here is a, an empire that's completely resolved to destroying the Jewish people. It's an act of genocide that's being planned. And then rather than being destroyed at the end, they are affirmed. They are given freedom uh, and enamored. So it's a story about reversal. But yeah, right at the beginning, as a Jew picks up the book of Esther and he's reading it, he's most likely reading it after Ahasuerus, or called Xerxes, his kingdom has fallen. Can you imagine, you pick up this book in 322 before Christ. Alexander the Great is ruling. The Greek Empire is, is, expanding, uh, is expanding all over the world. Everywhere you see craftsmen just chopping Osiris' name off the top of buildings and replacing it with Alexander the Great. And you think, oh, yeah, this is how the story started. Very opulent. This massive party. How God changed things. How God miraculously just bring, brought things uh, to turn around. That would have been your experience. And if you're a Christian here today, that is the experience you need to get as you read the book of Esther. Is that when God feels absent, when his name is not even mentioned as it's not even mentioned in this book, do not despair. God is at work. He's at work building his kingdom. And today we learn that he's building his kingdom one meal at a time. One meal at a time. So let's go back to this banquet, and we're going to contrast some banquets now. We've seen the detail of this banquet. We know that this banquet lasted for 180 days. That's six months. We know that this banquet took place in one of the capitals. There were three capitals, but Susa is one of the capitals. It took place in a, a, a major and accessible city so that people from all over this kingdom could come in. And there they were feasting. These were the nobles and the governors that were there before him. These are all the leaders. Uh, and we see what the king does in verse 4. He showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. This was, as we said earlier, a massive manipulating selling campaign. And so this king wins over these lieutenants and then he wins over the populace. 
And he does that through the sheer opulence of everything that is before him. He gives people his time, 180 days. He gives people access to him. They can easily walk up to him. He's in this palace. He's meeting with them. He's seeing them. He gives people time and access. He gives them his opulence and his power. And he gives them pleasure. Drink as much as you like. Later, he would titillate them with his own wife. And the message he's trying to say is, trust me. That's what his banquet is saying. There is amongst man nothing like a free lunch, and that was never more true than it is of King Ahasuerus. He's selling himself, and he's saying, trust me. Trust me. Now, this meal stands in sharp contrast to other banquets in human history, where we have to rely on a different sort of person. We have to trust a different sort of person, and he comes to us in a different sort of way. Uh, and so let me remind you, and in your head, start to think, how does this contrast to Aishiris' meal? How does Aishiris uh, mobilize people? Well, through an opulent meal that focuses on time, access, and pleasure. How does Jesus uh, uh, motivate people to follow him and to build his kingdom? Well, we discover this first in Exodus 20. You don't have to go there. Well, you might want to go to Exodus 24, uh, but, but this is what happened. Oh, in fact, go to Exodus 20. Let's do that. If you've got a Bible, uh, this will be a good, uh, a, a good exercise. You've got to see the pages as you turn them over to see how, how close these things are to each other. Exodus 20 uh, is, is the beginning of God's law. It's the Ten Commandments. That's where we get that from. And you've heard me say this before. At the beginning of the law, God stands up. He's about to declare the law. But before he does that, uh, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God starts with what he's done. And then comes God's law, the Ten Commandments. But these commandments carry on. And as you turn the pages up to chapter 24, you'll see that it's just commandments. It's just more commandments. He's telling them how to do things and how to do things. And then you get to chapter 24, and something strange happens. Then God said to Moses, and I think the heading says something about covenant renewed, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. That's verse 1 of chapter 24. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up to him or with him. Now verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, they beheld God, 
and ate and drank. A massive reading to get you to this point. That God condescends to come and eat and drink with his leaders. But, but notice when God does this. God eats and drinks with his people, not in order to mobilize them so that they go and fight on his behalf. What did chapter 20 verse 1 says? Say, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It follows God's victory. It's not in order to mobilize them for war, to mobilize them for their sacrifice. It is in order so that they can celebrate God's sacrifice on their behalf. You remember what was at the heart of their liberation out of Egypt? It's the ten plagues. The tenth one was the Passover meal. It was a meal. God was waging war with a meal. And as they broke uh, the, the bread, the unleavened bread, and as they slaughtered the lamb and painted his blood on the doorpost, God was saying to them, one day I will provide a sacrifice. I will provide a sacrifice that will mean my judgment passes over you. So now eat that truth. Eat the truth of my grace. Don't eat the truth of my power, of my opulence, of my influence. That's what Aishiris is saying. He says, no, eat my grace. Eat my grace so that you would know that this is what's going to happen. I will change the world one meal at a time. I am fighting for you. I'm not mobilizing you to fight for me. Friends, as we come later to celebrate the Lord's Supper here, you're thinking, what is it that I need to think about? What is it that I need to see as I come here? Please see many things and think about many things, but let it be bound together in this one word, grace, grace, grace. This is a feast of grace. What is grace? It's undeserved favor. What is that favor? Well, we did not deserve that God come and save us from judgment, from his own judgment, and he, he stepped in. He himself stepped in to save us from his own judgment. That is undeserved favor. And that is what we're celebrating. God is not mobilizing us with his power, with his influence, with his opulence. He's mobilizing us through his grace. What are we to do? Well, Psalm 23 gives us the best picture. You're in the Bible already. If you want to turn to Psalm 23, well-known psalm, but... Recite these words, learn these words, dream of these words, and, and see these words even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, moments, uh, uh, in a few moments. In chapter 23, we hear that, uh, that David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And here it is, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What is the picture? The picture is the enemies, the shadow of death is all around David. He's there, besieged, a religious minority. 
as it were, in the same way that the Jews were in Aishiris' Persian Empire, in the same way that Christians are around the world at this moment. A minority, there we are embattled with, with armies uh, facing down on God's people. How is God changing the world? How is he triumphing over his enemies? He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. A table. Can you imagine this table? Halfway in a battle, fighting, and then whistle blows, and all the guys are still ready to fight, and we go. We sit down. We sit down and we feast, and they're bashing on this shield that the Lord puts over his people, and they're looking on as God's people are feasting and drinking. Why? Because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the one that restores your, your soul. I am the one that leads you beside still waters. I am the one that leads you in paths of righteousness. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God mobilizes his people with a meal of grace, undeserved favor, undeserved protection. So what are some of the key differences then? We contrast Asherahs to the meals of God. We see Asherahs manipulate you through joy and opulence and power to get you to make big sacrifices. But God, on the other hand, gives you great joy, gives you a share in his power and in his opulence. And he does that by making the sacrifice for you. He does not require the sacrifice of you. He makes it for you. Aishiras aims to inspire you with great shows of earthly power and pomp. Christ's meal does not inspire us with greatly earthly power and pomp. In fact, it's completely the opposite. It draws us through its humility and through its weakness because the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The, the, the meal is beckoning you to rely on God. It's... it's it's drawing it out of you to say, let go of all the earthly powers that's striking to get hold of your heart. Let go of everyone that's vain for your reliance and motivating you through different means so that you can accomplish their purposes. You will serve them. You will serve them as people who belong to the Lord. But come, let this humble meal draw you. But Jesus is the one who takes his body and he says, this is my body, and then he breaks it, which is for you. That's him going to war on your behalf. This is my body broken for you. This is how he gave himself so that you can feed and eat on him as you face the resistance of the world. It's a meal of grace, grace of God in his son that took our place on the cross. This is my blood poured out for you the new covenant, the new relationship between us and God. God gives us this simple sign to say, don't look anywhere else. Don't rely on anything else in order to mobilize you to fight for me. In fact, rely on me and put on this spiritual armor. Put on this spiritual armor, which is essentially me. Put me on. Eat me. Drink me. Feast on me. That is how you will remain strong in a world that is against us. No, it is the whole people of God that feasts on the whole body of Christ 
Today you'll see we're making some changes in the way that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is what we long to accomplish through some of these changes. You'll see that we, we will pray after this now. I'll pray and then Carl will lead us in a community prayers as we sit here. And then we'll sing. And after that song, I'll invite you to come to the Lord's table around the table. We'll sing, I think, once more or not. I can't remember what the slides say. But then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And after the Lord's Supper, we will eat the bread broken for us. Almost the bread of sorrow, remembering, proclaiming that the Lord had to die in order to fight for us. And then we will look at the wine. We'll remember that his blood was poured out in order to pay for our sin. But, but there's a glimmer of hope there. Because the passage says, you proclaim the, whenever you eat and drink this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death, there's the bread, until he comes. It, it is a, is a meal of grace, yes, but a, a meal of grace that has triumphed over the darkness and evil. And so we will lift up our glasses before we drink, almost like a toast to say, until he comes. And then we will drink. And once we've drunk, we will sing praise to God. We will fill this place with joy. Because that is our power. Our power is not in an individualistic little experience of me, myself, and I, as I draw near to God on my own here. No, my, my joy is in seeing that the one bread feeds this whole body of people not mobilizing them for war, but mobilizing them for grace, filling them with the power of grace to know that, yes, in spite of my weakness, in spite of my brokenness, in spite of my inability to fight, God is fighting on my behalf. God is what motivates me for war. So I pray that that will be your experience around the table this morning, that you will see his grace, his opulence, his lavish grace in his son, uh, and that you will rely on him rather than in earthly carnal powers. Uh, let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll see if Carl is back. He needs to pray the community prayer, which I think he's just dealt with uh, Georgie for a minute. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we we're a little bit scared, to be honest, because we know the world is and has always been against, uh, against you and against your people. Um, and we know that simply by looking at history, first the history of Israel, both in ancient history and in modern history, and then also at the history of the church. Many of us experience that resistance in the world that we live in, uh, and it begs the question, where are you? Where are you? And perhaps we then pick up the book of Esther, hoping to read about you, and you don't even mention your own name in this whole book. And perhaps that's the answer we need to hear this morning, Father, is that even though we think you're absent, even when we think you're inactive, you are busy building your church in this spiritual way. Father, please protect us from relying on political power, to exert influence on the world. Please protect us and other Christians around the world from relying on, on military power to exert influence in the world. Please protect us from relying on relational power in order to win people over uh, for the kingdom. Let us not fundamentally rely on those things, but let us rely on you. You let, Egypt, you let Israel out of slavery, out of the land of slavery. And you brought them into the promised land. 
And so we know that you are the one building your church. We come to this meal this morning in order to see you afresh, to eat and drink with you, and to get this sign of the covenant that you will fight for us, that you will and have triumphed for us on our behalf, and that what there is left for us to do is to feast in your presence, to worship and to enjoy you. We pray as we prepare for the Lord's Supper that, yes, we'll come with the burden of our sin as we lay it down at your feet, but we will leave light, energized, motivated, not for war, but for worship. We will leave motivated to sing your honor and your glory and to enjoy you. We, we want to leave with eyes open so that we can see you at work in this broken world that we're in. Father, give us eyes to see what you're doing and help us to join you in that work. We will learn from Esther that it took, uh, it took supernatural courage for her to do what she did, approaching the king at the risk of her own life. But she could only do that when you have filled her with your spirit. And therefore we ask that we will be people that's led by your spirit, that relies on your spirit. Please come and fill us with your Holy Spirit, making us obedient to do your work. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Now, Carl is going to come and pray for us. Um, one of the churches that we're praying for today is uh, on the board behind you. It's a church called IPC Ealing, International Presbyterian Church Ealing, and that's a picture of them.